0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's BYTE.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with BYTE.
1: Here we go. As we age, can we be active and pain free? Can we push ourselves hard without? paying the consequences for days? Can our bodies really heal and allow us to be active as we age? And how is science advancing? How are we enabling ourselves to be able to do so? Joining us today on Living Your Life with Leanne Lang, we have Dr. Rob Govro, who's been practicing sports medicine for over 35 years. He focuses on leading-edge regenerative medicine solutions, along with a plethora of other things that I can't wait to hit on today. He's served as team physician in the OHL, the CFL, the NHL, and the list goes on. He's also an assistant professor at Ottawa U. So brace yourselves. By the end of this, there will be no more excuses to be sitting on your couch because you're complaining of old age or of injury. Welcome to this episode of Living Your Life with Leanne Lang, the podcast brought to you by Extension Marketing. And for more information, please head to extensionmarketing.com. Also, please like, share, subscribe, and comment on the podcast. It is amazing to see the growth and just the reaction. And that as people share, the podcast continues to grow. Dr. Govro.
0: So Good nice morning. to see
1: you in this setting and not in your office.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: <laughs> I have been in a number of times with my kids and with Tony and with hips and injuries. Oh my yeah. goodness, we are just one of many families who probably come in and see you.
0: Well, uh, yes, and uh, that includes your your mother has <laughs> <And laughs> been mother. a pretty regular client, but uh, yes. all because I mean you lead a very active uh, lifestyle, uh, which. Uh, I, the message uh, that I'm trying to get across today is that uh, you know, we're really wired to, uh, for movement, and uh, we, uh, I think, have lost this ability not only to move well, quality of movement, but also to move, once we've established moving well, to move often.
1: The thing is, is though, and I hear this. It was funny. I was away on vacation, and I was with these girlfriends, and they and everyone kept saying, "Well, for our age, right? We're moving as something for our age." And I, it drives me nuts because I don't want to add "for our age" at the end of every sentence, right? You want to be able to people to just feel good because they feel good, that they can move and they can be active. Are we capable of that? Are, are our bodies capable of doing this?
0: Yeah, uh, that. I think is is a real misconception is that we're all pre-programmed to break down uh, prematurely. Um, I think it's, you know, the analogy I often use in the office is that, uh, you know, we we spend a lot of time and effort uh, maintaining and servicing our vehicles so that they run well. And uh, the irony in that is that there's very little time actually in paying attention to uh, how well your body moves and how, how you're maintaining it in terms of proper nutrition, sleep, we hate the word exercise, we like to call it movement training, but these things are very important to, in order to maintain an optimal you know, physical body. So maintenance has to be done, it has to be done on a daily basis. Uh, we uh, can't take it for granted that this uh, fine-tuned machine is going to continue to work well throughout life without investing effort into it.
1: When did you start to make the investment into this profession? Like, what was the interest for you going back uh, that you saw this line of work is where you wanted to go?
0: Uh, the sport medicine angle came pretty early in, in uh, my medical training. I uh, went out, uh, like, graduated from Ottawa U Medical School and then went out uh, to Alberta to do a uh, rotating internship, which is a thing of the past now. They now have family medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, residencies. Uh, but uh, it, when I was out west, the hospital I worked at, we, we formed a, uh, a group of interns that were interested in uh, covering sporting events. So uh, I didn't know a lot of people initially when I moved out there from Ontario. So I got involved in the sport uh, community in Edmonton. And uh, we were covering high school football, track meets, wrestling meets, college hockey. And uh, I just had a passion for it. I loved it. And uh, not only because we were dealing with it pretty committed, uh, you know, active, you know, population, uh, which did have acute injuries to deal with. But that whole mindset of the athlete, I think, really appealed to me, and and I think was a big influence in how I practiced medicine.
1: So it wasn't that you had anticipated it. Were you active? Were you an athlete growing up? Like, was sport part of your every day?
0: Very much so. Uh, you know, we were encouraged uh, as kids to get involved, and uh, I played, you know, Canadian, you know, passion. I played hockey and then got involved in uh, various high school sports, took up running. Uh, when I was uh, in my years of studying for medicine, I just found it was a great release. You could get out, clear your mind, get back to the books for a while. So I had always incorporated fitness into a part of my life. And uh, my wife's, you know, family was also very, uh, very fit, uh, skied, cross-country skied, downhill skied. And uh, we encouraged our kids to You'd also continue with this really active lifestyle. So to us, it was sort of a normal way of living. But what started to surprise me is, is you know, when we're looking at the general population, even in the younger age groups, we become a lot more sedentary.
1: It's a, it, it's yeah. scary. And I think even it, it seems to be splitting those that are incredibly active are becoming even more so and more in tune with the medicine and the activities and, and the the nutrition like I find that it's split that you're either going really that way or you're going into the on your phone on your devices you know hardly moving and you know you're not getting off the couch like there there it seems that we haven't found that middle, a middle ground
0: yeah I don't think it's encouraged you know like you know throughout the school years too I mean you, you can probably go through all the school years without having to take physical education or you know gym class um if you don't have parents that are pushing this message and getting their kids involved, I think uh, a lot of kids fall through the cracks. And as you said, Leon, they get into uh, you know living in a virtual world. Here's my screen, and this is where I live. I live on my screen. And uh, you know, in talking to some of the local pediatricians, and uh, we have our practice in Riverside South, uh, they, you know, one of the questions they have to me is, how do you get people involved to become more active? And I said. I don't know. <laughs> it's a challenge. And, and for them, that what they're seeing is a population now of uh, relatively sedentary kids. Some of them are taking blood pressure and cholesterol medications now. And these are kids in the 12 to 16-year-old age group. And this is just unheard of. And then we're looking now, they're predicting that this generation is going to have a shorter lifespan than any previous generation, which has never happened before. We always assume that we're going to live I, longer.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I would yeah. think with science and innovation and the way we're understanding the human body that we are finding ways or that some will extend their lives longer and others will be living much shorter lives. Are you seeing, because I was I was thinking about this, kids on their devices, I mean, in your clinic, kids coming in now with um, sore backs, sore necks, sore wrists thumb injuries from the video games, you know, the repetition and the repetitive movement of some of these actions is actually causing also pain.
0: Yeah, uh, you're right, Leanne. Like, it, what surprises me is a lot of these kids now have adult diseases, adult symptoms, uh, like you say, the neck strain and the repetitive, you know, uh, overuse injuries to their forearms, hands, wrists. Uh, so we've got a, a term, uh, we call it chair disease, and there's been a lot of talk about the sitting disease. Uh, Mike Evans, uh, a doctor in Toronto, has got some interesting uh, content online called 23 and a half hours, and he talks about the, the sitting disease. And out of the 24 hours of a day, if you can move half an hour, then the the reduction in the diseases of a modern civilization is significant. And what are the diseases of modern civilization that we're starting to see in kids now? Type 2 diabetes, obesity is there, high blood pressure for some kids. We're seeing arthritis uh, start to occur. We're picking it up in, in you know the mid to late teen years. People are developing arthritic symptoms. So this, I, I think, is really... Uh, you know, a good example of how as moving animals, and we are a member of the animal kingdom, we haven't adapted ourselves very well to this technological age. And I think we're seeing this breakdown of the human body as a result of that.
1: All right, let's talk about this breakdown, because I think this is where you come in. And there's a lot of different ways of which you are looking at it and are looking to heal people looking to get people moving. So you, you come back from out west, create your practice here. Is that right? Because I'm assuming your practice has changed drastically over the last number of years, from what you used to be focused on uh, to what you're now dealing with.
0: Yeah, very much so. Uh, Historically, uh, sport medicine is a pretty new, um, I guess we call it a subspecialty. Uh, It didn't exist uh, uh, until, well, we had our first actual national level exam in 1989. And yet, there was a group of us in Ottawa that started working at, uh, Carleton University Sport Medicine. It was, there's always an argument as to, you know, who started the first sport medicine clinic in Canada. Was it Carleton University or was it out at UBC? And they were probably set up at about the same time. But when I got back to, uh, Ottawa, I start I got into a, con- you know, more conventional general practice, family practice. And, uh, I uh, got a call from a, a colleague of mine. He said, "Well, you know, there's a sport medicine clinic that's uh, trying to recruiting physicians, and or am I interested?" And of course, I was interested, and I got on board right away. So it was a group that w- that came from very athletic backgrounds, uh, and uh, I'm not name dropping, but there was Louise Walker, who was a, a you know an Olympic high jumper. Uh, and uh, we had Don Johnson, who was known for his Ironman events. Uh, Bernie Lalonde, who was involved, uh, you know, as a, a ski coach. At I'm going to cry Elephant right. Elephant. right now yeah. because I have
1: been <laughs> in every one of their <laughs> offices.
0: So, I yeah. can just
1: picture going in and seeing all of them bringing me back to yeah. gosh as a gymnast like we'll just be front and center right we were there was injuries all the oh, time yeah. but you've listed every single doctor yeah. that I have you know fond memories of and 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 going okay this one got me back from this break and this one from this injury but it, it was fascinating there was so much talent and and such big names that kind of established themselves here
0: yeah what was interesting is we we had really no formal training because none existed. Uh, there were no residency programs uh, UBC I think set up the first uh, uh, initial sport medicine residency program in Canada. Uh, now we have one in Ottawa. but because of this group's interest in in uh you know being active and in the active population, uh, we just network we learn from one another and uh, it evolved to the point that we we started calling ourselves sport medicine physician but we had no real formal credentials to back that up uh, until uh, 1989 uh, the uh, first uh, exam was was uh, set up by uh, canadian academy of sport and exercise medicine so our group in ottawa we we took a year of uh, uh, studying we had this study group and we Get together, Howie Cohen and, uh, and you know, Louise and all of the people we were talking about. And and we uh, just went through different scenarios that could possibly on, be on this exam. We had no clue what we were going to be coming up against. And uh, sure enough, we all got through it and we, we became credentialed. So from there, uh, more formal teaching uh, programs, uh, you know, started to develop.
1: For you at, at that time, was it getting athletes, getting people back from injury back into their sport? Was it uh, rehab for certain injuries that were non-sports related? Like what for you was the passion behind the work you were doing for these people, for your patients?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's, number one, a keen interest in muscle skeletal uh, medicine. You know, that, that always appealed to me. Um, and when you, when you look at it, it's also the most uh, poorly taught uh, subject in medical school. And even through residency years in family medicine, like it's just not a big part of the curriculum. What do you mean by it? Well, there, I think, is so much to learn, for one thing. So you go through various uh, uh, systems like cardiovascular and, you know, um, renal. Uh, You have to take psychiatry, various other disciplines. You have to learn a lot. And when it comes to uh, muscle skeletal, it was sort of, it's always been sort of on the back burner, and it hasn't changed. What surprises me is we're very involved in teaching uh, medical students, residents, and they, you know, that's the common uh, complaint they have is they don't get enough exposure to this unless they do a sport medicine elective. They come out of there about to start practice is really a blank slate when it comes to muscle skeletal uh, complaints.
1: Okay, but that's my question. What is what exactly is muscular skeletal? like what are you referring to
0: Well anything to do with uh I guess your your physical entity your
1: Okay that's that's a your, that's, a big, <laughs> that's your, a big umbrella there.
0: Yeah, muscles, tendons, joints, uh you know the, this this uh, this moving uh animal that we are is really poorly uh you know taught in in terms of you know number one I I'll go into what is also not being taught, even at, at the levels that we are teaching at, is, is you know, this idea of how the disease that we're treating, the pathology that we're treating, I think can be very much linked to how these moving parts, uh, you know, as a human, do not move well. And I think we, we sort of touched on, well, why don't they move well? Well, because we have adapted ourselves to become uh, chairs, you know, we, we have 90 degree hip flexion for most of our life from school ages up. So essentially, you lose the center of movement, which are your hip joints, uh, very quickly in life or very early in life. And then we also see, you know, the, this prototypical, prototypical posture that, that an office worker develops. Uh, because again, you're in a sitting position, you're also leaning forward over a computer, over a keyboard. So we call it the hunched Hinged, so hunched in the mid back, hinged in the neck, f- shoulders come forward, and you're in a, in a position of what we call shoulder impingement. So this this adaptation to sitting in a chair has really destroyed our ability to move well. And and the two big problem areas that we see are centered around the hips and around the you know mid back, upper back, shoulders. And uh, unless we sort of you know look at this is what we've done to our cells. How do we get ourselves out of this mess? We're going to continue to see this epidemic of osteoarthritis, uh, tendinopathies, meaning the wear and tear change that people have in in tendons like rotator cuffs and tennis elbows and this epidemic of Achilles tendon problems. Uh, I'll have to touch on that a little bit later because I think footwear factors into this problem we have uh, quite a bit.
1: So... I'm so i in that I heard two very different things because you you talk about this sitting disease, but then you bring in a tennis elbow and you know cuff injuries they're not getting that from sitting in a in a chair are we we are yeah I'm thinking we're getting <laughs> those injuries from being out inactive, but we're actually getting what you would normally assume would be sports related injuries by simply being inactive some yeah. of it
0: i that that's uh Correct. Like you you, you need to um, have your tissues ad- adapt to mechanical load. Um, but the problem with that, Leon, is we see like this adaptation, like when you, you look at what happens in a sitting position, um, we become very forward postured. So when you look at the design of, of, let's say, a shoulder joint, it's a it's a shallow socket, it's a big ball, and, it, and it's meant to have a tremendous amount of mobility. And, and gymnasts know that. I mean, if you're doing rings and things like that, you have a have to have a tremendous amount of mobility in that joint as well as stability and strength. So what happens is you adapt to a forward postured position. The, Without getting too technical, the front of your shoulder, which is musculature shoulder capsule, the joint capsule, becomes very tight and we do a couple of screening tests in the office. So the other thing I, I'm trying to get across to the, to the residents that come in and as part of our teaching program, we've gone to the university and taught several of these sessions is we should be looking at what we call functional movement screens. Look at the way that person's moving. Don't isolate a joint and try to go through different angles of movement by isolating a joint. Look at the whole movement pattern. And typically what we see with shoulders is nobody has mobility when it comes to getting their their arms into the, or shoulders into into the posterior plane of movement, meaning in behind your head. Like we do this little screening test, which is called a wall angel. So you put your heels to the floorboards, back to the wall, put your lower back in so you're not cheating by hyperextending your lower back. Try to get your elbows to the wall, then the back of your hands to the wall. That I would say probably in 90% of people is a challenge. They, can't get anywhere near the wall. We're going, well, that's just neutral plane, like just getting your shoulders into a neutral plane of movement. So we see this, these joints that are just stuck in poor movement patterns. So then here's an example. So the, you know, let's say a person that spends most of their time on a computer, has this forward posturing, tight shoulder, goes out to the company picnic. It's baseball. Let's play baseball. So they go and they go to the outfield and A ball comes their way, and they try to throw that ball from the outfield to home plate, and they tear the rotator cuff. Why? Well, it's it's because for years they've created wear and tear, abnormal friction and abnormal impingement-type movement patterns, that have slowly weakened the rotator cuff, and then that one throw finishes it. So they're going, oh, well, I'm getting old. I guess I shouldn't have thrown that ball. Well, yes, you shouldn't have thrown that ball. You should have been doing a lot of mobility and strength training and everything else to prepare yourself for that particular sport. So I think this is why we see a lot of injuries too, is that people that have an intention to be active aren't doing the necessary work in terms of mobility, flexibility, cleaning up harmful movement patterns before they get into their sport, and then they have an injury.
1: You know, you've got this uh, men they they're pretty proud of their once a week pickup hockey, right? You know, and it's just and they go in, they pop a cup of Advils before <laughs> before they play because <laughs> they anticipate the pain <laughs> after. You know, th- this a, a, in their mindset they're like, "Okay, I'm being active. I'm going to do exercise." But it, it, in so many cases, it's it's Damaging. It's 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 not the right move.
0: Yeah, very much so. Like we, we see that you know they can uh, <laughs> uh, seniors league hockey players and uh, a lot of them are they're getting a little broken down for sure and you know the Advil is the this is the warm up it's also the cool down but uh, we we try to explain to them that you know if they maybe incorporate a little bit more uh, time into uh, preparing for the sport and like one of the other initiatives that I had started a few years ago was this uh, have a heart for hockey which is more to do with prepare yourself uh, you know uh, condition your your cardiovascular system for hockey uh, because of this high r- risk of heart attacks in seniors hockey players but that's a, a different topic altogether but uh so what we see is there's very little preparation as you say for the sport so um they're they're very much setting themselves up for an injury of some sort because despite being non-contact at that uh, age, it still is a contact sport out there. You're running into each other inadvertently, uh, so a little bit of time and effort. And it, what's interesting is the, the the patients that buy into this very quickly realize how much it helps them in terms of their mobility. Uh, their sports performance improves, uh, you know, quite a bit. Uh, that message is often lost, uh, you know, uh, as you say, in, in uh, preparing the athlete for a sport. Uh, an example I often use uh, for, for patients, because I was always fascinated, I used to go to the y- YMCA in Maryville before they closed down, and there was a large contingent of Olympic lifting athletes there, and a, a physiotherapist friend of mine uh, is a national level Olympic lifter, and And they spent a tremendous amount of time working on uh, joint mobility, hip mobility, shoulder mobility, uh, wrist mobility, so that when they went over to the lifting station, they were well prepared to do these lifts. You know, it's a very technical sport, involves a lot of uh, mobility, balance, strength. And, uh, you know, I would go in and out of there having done my workout, and they're still warming up. And I thought, that's interesting. They They must know something I don't know. And indeed, they did. And I started buying into, uh, you know, this importance of, of trying to maintain your your joint mobility, your tissue flexibility. Uh, very important to, you know, to maintain, you know, those parameters for proper movement.
1: As you're mentioning this, can you give us examples? Like what, you know, if there's someone listening to this going, okay, I get this. There needs to be this movement. What, what are we moving? What should we be doing?
0: Yeah, so we... Try to break it down. Like one of the concerns I always had, and and you know, this is my thirty-eighth year now as a, as a sport medicine doc, and we, we really I think went down the wrong pathway for many years in, in the sense that we we became very good diagnosticians, meaning we could tell you what was wrong. Uh, you know, we could tell you the pathology. You know, you got an arthritic knee, or you have a torn rotator cuff, but. We didn't really have a good understanding as to how the person got themselves there, and that's still not being taught. And this is what I'm—the message I'm trying to get across is reverse engineer. uh, You know this end result, this tissue breakdown. Let's reverse engineer it. Let's figure out how this happened to the person. There's certainly always that that you know, I guess, tipping point or traumatic injury that might uh you know bring it to their attention but things are ready to happen for that person and we should be recognizing that very early on so to get back to your question i'm sorry uh i think the best way to look at that is you look at the body as a whole when you're examining a patient like we also develop in in the sport medicine world and we teach this in in medicine generally isolate the joint if you're maybe looking quickly at the joint above and below. Well, you're doing a pretty good job. But we don't we're doing it in, in very passive ways. We 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 just move the patient's joint passively or we have them actively move it. But we don't look at what we call functional movement patterns. In other words, if you have to lift something overhead, let's see how you lift that object overhead. And that gives you a tremendous amount of information as to why they have a particular Problem with their shoulder, so you you have to look at that whole kinetic chain, and if you don't look at that, you're missing a big part of the the reason why they're in the office. So we've changed the way we examine patients. So we, we do movement screening, and uh, it's not rocket science. You know we that wall angel was a test we talked about. We have uh, we have a hockey stick in the office, and we use the hockey stick to uh, see kind of person. Grab the hockey stick uh, with, you know, a wide grip, bring it from the front of their body where they're starting all the way up over their head to the back of their body without breaking at the elbows, uh, you know, flexing the elbows. So that's a great way to look at mid-back, thoracic extension, uh, shoulder mobility. So that's a big functional movement pattern.
1: This is something that you're looking at in the office, but yeah. you could have someone standing in their kitchen and grabbing their kitchen broom and doing this same movement, which you're saying is is a key movement, which which would be one, you know. And and I get it. Yeah, hopefully people can picture it, right? You've got the you've got the stick in front of you. Your arms are really wide, and you bring it above, and then you kind of maneuver your shoulder out to bring it behind you. Yes. Now, at one point, you maybe when you were younger were a lot closer in. <laughs> Your your hands were much closer right now, right? It's yeah, your the, your arms are pretty far apart.
0: Yeah, it, it actually becomes a little less difficult uh, the further you are apart, you know, with your arms. Like it's sort of yeah. like uh, the equivalent of an Olympic lift, uh, doing a snatch. But the the movement screen that we do for that is seeing well. Number one, can they achieve that? Because a lot of people get stuck coming around the bend; they can't get it in behind their head, and they go, "Oh, that's unusual. How come?" You, you can do it and I can't do it. Well, this is where we get back to, well, over the years, you've adapted very well to being in a sitting position, forward postured, etc. So the trouble with that is when they, you know, they are the weekend warrior and they need good mobility, in this instance, it's the shoulder, they don't have it. And this is where we see the injuries. Well, I, you know, an example was playing hockey. I went to poke check. Uh, it got caught in another player, the stick, and it pulled my shoulder back quickly and... I felt something rip. Well, yes, your rotator cuff tore, but it's because you brought it to that end range of, 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 of tissue plasticity very quickly, and it hasn't been there for years, and it tore. You know, it hasn't adapted to, to being nice, mobile tissue. So that's sort of the importance that we, we place on, you know, maintaining uh, mobility, flexibility, once you achieve that add stability through strengthening and like these are just the fundamentals in in uh, maintaining your physical well-being
1: are we able to reverse it even as we're aging right now so you have someone who's uh you know late 50s listening to this going it's too late for me at this point i i've been i've been immobile and in the sitting position for you know 30 years why start now
0: um
1: can I'm, can we convince them that, yes, by starting this movement, by quality movement in their life is going to extend the – like, you know, how you referred to it as as this car, you know, as the warranty. Can you do this?
0: That's definitely the challenge, uh, Leanne. Like, uh, one thing that I realized as a sport medicine physician, and in, in the early years we were, we were a bit elitist in, in the sense that we, uh, you know uh, – We would only treat people that had a sport-related injury or, you know, uh, injury related to an active lifestyle. And um, I don't think that was very uh, appropriate in the sense that we're dealing with the general population now, all of us sport medicine doctors. But because of that uh, subgroup that we were treating, uh, it was like, you know, we were preaching to the converted, like we, did, right. we were telling them, well, no, you actually have to slow down because they wanted to get back into their sport so quickly. So, in the context of, of dealing more with the general population, that's the challenge. It is I wish there was, a, you know, like a pill that was a motivating pill, saying you got to get off the couch, you got to move. But um, what's interesting is people, if you can just initially plant that that thought and and have them start to realize that it does start to make a difference very quickly and what's interesting is the person that i guess has a lot of issues and and uh, has a lot of movement related you know aches and pains uh, realizes the benefit probably the quickest because they're starting from a very low level and we see this in the clinic. And once they start in t- getting into a little bit of a movement-based uh, program, and this is the, the other thing that I, I would probably like to touch on in, in the terms of what's provided out there in the physio world, movement training is, is just not a standard way of, of treating patients. In other words, uh, the physiotherapy industry has also become very uh Oriented towards chasing the pain. Like we have a machine for everything now. We have a modality for everything. Well, I'm not saying that modalities that reduce pain cannot help in the acute stage of an injury, but you've got to get that person moving. And this is what is really not done very well in the physio world. So we've sort of reconfigured our clinic in the sense that we have no modalities. We don't, not that we don't realize machines can be of some benefit, but we really want to focus on why is this person hurting what can we do to improve their their mobility and their movement patterns so that they get th- they get themselves out of pain
1: so what i'm hearing from this is in my days of going into a physio office, I knew that I would probably have 10 minutes under an ultrasound machine with that blue gel and they would kind of move the ultrasound machine around for 10, 15 minutes. And then I would have the interferential, which, you know, was like the zapping. Like, you know, I kind of looked forward to it because it was like almost relaxation at some point, right? So you're thinking these machines are doing something to stimulate the healing process. And then you're in and, you know, and then there was either I'm in an an ice a nice machine, <laughs> the ice yeah. tub, where I'm getting heat on it. So this is where you're like, you'd like to see this is moving. We want to move away from this and get it more so that, is it more, are the physiotherapists then more hands-on? Like, are they assisting in the movement? Is there, or are these are just about exercises now? Like, so take me through then what, I go into your office, you give the diagnosis, you've got this issue, mm-hmm. What's now happening on the other end? This podcast is brought to you by Extension Marketing. They are a new breed of marketing agency that acts as your virtual marketing department, designing and implementing cost effective marketing strategies that will grow your business. I can speak to this personally, as I've been using the Extension Marketing team to help me launch and grow my business. Founder Pat Whalen has been a lifesaver for me, a genuine coach guiding me along the way into unchartered territory. Tell them you're a friend of the show and receive a free one-hour consultation. Check them out at extensionmarketing.com. You've got this issue. What's now happening on the other end that you would like to see?
0: Yeah, so what... Uh... I think one of our missions is maybe to get this word out, uh, number one, to, to other family doctors, which we do because we, we're pretty involved in the teaching program now, and we brought these concepts to the Department of Family Medicine, and uh, one of the directors there uh, uh, just loves it. And, and, you know, one of the things he said to us he, was, uh, about 20 years ago, he was on a holiday in Cuba, and he went into a physiotherapy clinic because he just wanted to see, well, what's this all about? Uh, you know, this is a was a third world country back then in terms of their economy. And um, what surprised him is there was no modalities, like no machines, no interferential ultrasound, things like that. And he saw people on the floor stretching. He saw people doing squats. He saw people doing deadlifts. So he went over and talked to one of the physiotherapists. He says, Well, w- what are you doing? Like, where are your machines? He says, Machines don't get a person better and, and, and moving well. So this is how we train our patients and this is how we get patients better so it, you know th- these concepts nobody owns movement but what's happened i think in north america and it's similar to the te- technologies that have evolved is that uh, and and also medications that doctors prescribe is that we have a machine for every ache and pain there is and if you're not that motivated to move you can become very comfortable getting onto a you know a, a treatment bed and having machines put on you. And this is one of the things we ask, or I ask patients when they come in. I said, okay, you've, you've had physiotherapy. Let's go through what they were doing. And one of the first questions I'll ask is, how much time did you spend on a treatment bed versus moving, doing stretches, doing fundamental movement patterns like squats, deadlifts. If you have a back problem, learn how to do a deadlift. And the, the typical answer is, well, we haven't quite gotten to any exercises yet. And I said, well, what, you've been in physiotherapy for six weeks now, and they're not teaching you how to get yourself out of trouble, how to improve your movement patterns. And, and typically, this is the way the industry is oriented right now. It's very lucrative. You can see a lot of patients because you can put a machine on and have a physio assistant watch over the machine while you go to another patient and hook up another machine. So it's a bit of a blank slate for most physicians as to what their, you know, their patient gets when they go to physio. And it's, I know the industry and I see what happens. And what I think really got me so focused on movement was, um, you know, the interest that the physiotherapists at our clinic had, and there's some very clear thinkers in the U.S., um, and they're both physiotherapists, uh, and they're quite well known. Kelly Starrett, Gray Cook, uh, are very much movement-based physiotherapists. And uh, Kelly Starrett's written a couple of books, and he um, uh, looks really at breaking down, you know, what is causing this person's problem. How also can you get? themselves out of it. So we've taken a, a little bit of, of, of what he talks about. Gray Cook set up a system of what's called functional movement screens, which his physio industry more or less, uh, you know, did not accept as a standard until the NFL, Major League Baseball and NHL Combine started using his movement screens to select their athletes. And he goes, well, maybe there is something to this. If they're using that to select the best athletes in the world, maybe we should be looking at movement more and more carefully. So what surprised us is we started looking into this, and then what we did is we connected the dots. We said, well, yeah, these guys are are talking about quality movement, and they're dealing more with an athletic population. Let's look at the general population, and let's connect the dots. Let's reverse engineer again uh, what's happened to this person. Let's clean up the harmful movement create quality movement and then create quantity and then also connect dots that the end result of this is the epidemic of osteoarthritis that we're seeing and the epidemic of tendinopathies like worn down tendons and and connective tissues. Uh, there's There's a definite direct correlation between the two this, what surprises me is, is these concepts are not taught in medical school. They're not taught in any physiotherapy curriculum in Canada or in the U.S., to my knowledge. Um, we're trying to make a little bit of a, you know, of a grassroots movement here to, to wake people up. It's kind of like we skipped these very important concepts and went right into let's just treat the disease because the disease exists. But like you said, Leanne, it doesn't have to exist, if we, if we got people, I think, much earlier in life, like even to the point of, of, of physical education programs that people don't have to participate anymore in, is train quality movement. You know, get that person moving well. And, and when we look at quality movement, it's looking at when a person moves, are they maintaining proper alignment through their joints? Like especially if you're looking at an arthritic knee, you have to have... A straight mechanical axis between hip, knee, and ankle to be moving well. So it's the equivalent of driving a car with your wheels out of alignment. Something's going to break down pretty quickly in that car. And we see a lot of people are collapsed in at the hip, collapsed in at the foot and ankle, knee goes into a what we call a valgus alignment. It shifts inward on them. So you're creating this abnormal shear stress on the knee joint. They have tight hip flexors, tight quads. So it tips their pelvis, it also creates a tremendous amount of shear stress through the kneecap, the patella. And very early in life, we see a lot of younger patients coming in with patellofemoral pain. Hurts under my kneecap, doctor. So we, we, we look at their hip mobility. It's terrible. They've sat in a chair at school. They're very quad dominant movement patterns. So, so we look at this and I go, well, okay, let, if I have this movement pattern and I do it long enough, it's gonna create wear and tear change in that particular joint. So it starts shearing away at your cartilage. There's abnormal compression load, abnormal shear stresses on the joint. Your joint's gonna break down. Now I've had this discussion with orthopedic surgeons as well as orthopedic uh, you know, residents and fellows, and it's not taught. But what surprises me is I'll be in an operating room and we're putting in a a total joint replacement, a total knee, and all of a sudden we're worried about ligament balance, alignment, making sure the patella is properly positioned, that we don't lower the joint line too much. So all of a sudden now we're interested in in all about the biomechanics of the knee, and I say to the surgeon like, maybe if we started teaching this to the patient when they were young, they wouldn't be in the operating room here. And what? really surprises me is when I look at the age group of people getting total joint replacements, hip and knee replacements, it's dropped down a full decade. Like we're seeing people in their late forties and fifties now needing joint replacement. We're going like, what's happened to this human animal?
1: A lot of times people say, well, it's because of, you know, sports injuries and you know, that, you know, that it's not that hip replacements are happening when you're 70. (laughs) God, Tony had one my husband trust me I had a hard time telling people that my husband had a hip replacement right but like he was a, a goaltender and a court like you, you know I tried to kind of he was in so he was in excruciating pain like he couldn't like it was hard to watch a very athletic person be in this much constant pain like getting out of bed you know by the time that was over but before he had the, the surgery it was excruciating oh yes people are in a lot of pain
0: and if you don't mind me asking, Leon, how old was Tony when he had his hip uh, replacement? Oh, gosh.
1: Um, I want to say 51. Certainly
0: on the young end of the spectrum. I would yeah. think so. Yeah. I
1: should add that there's yeah. 11 years difference between yeah. <laughs> Tony
0: and I.
1: Yeah. Have I mentioned that before?
0: <laughs> so so here's a thought. Yeah. So uh, I was uh, team physician for the yeah. 67s for 15 years plus, And um, every training camp, we had at least one or two goaltenders with hip, what we call hip impingement. And, uh, and we picked this up very early in life. These are kids in their this, teens. Yeah, but yeah, they're young. Yeah. So we look at that movement pattern. So what does a goaltender do? He call, like butterfly goaltenders, sort of the standard now. So unless Tony was conventional or old school stand up, but probably not, he, he probably was at least did some butterfly yes. type. Uh. So when you collapse in on your hips like that, it creates what we call hip impingement, meaning you're driving the ball into the upper outer part of the socket. And what's interesting is we can, um, before the hip uh, growth plates fuse, so kids can get away with this. Let's say you're a goaltender and you're going through all the, the younger years of hockey, you can get away with it because there's a lot of plasticity to your hip. The growth plates will allow that. Once the growth plates fuse, we start seeing bony changes in the hip. And there's a little bone bump develops. It's called a cam deformity. And it's just, if you put enough abnormal pressure on a bone, the bone reacts to that. It produces more bone. So we see this bone bump and a couple of special x-ray views, and it often leads to doing MRI imaging. But we recognize this very early in life. So my thought, and I, I, I don't want to uh, you know, say that this is the case uh, with Tony, but there's a good chance that this was starting very early in life. So we do recognize this now and one of the 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 main things with um with hips is you you have to address uh number one there's a lot of tightness in goaltenders hip flexors which uh, again pulls the ball to the front of the socket and then then when they rotate in it causes the impingement so we have to get them working a lot on on uh hip flexor mobility Centralizing the joints very important. Joint centricity. That ball's got to stay in the center of the socket. So you got to really work on muscle balance.
1: So that's what a physiotherapist. Okay. So say you've got your OHL goal, goalie come in and going, I'm in a ton of pain. This is about the movement of making sure they're doing exercises that are keeping, as you mentioned, that socket. It, it, aligned in the middle so that you're moving around it am
0: uh, yes. i am i
1: understanding it like these would be the exercises that you would want them working on to counter out to balance it out
0: yeah very much so leanne but you can't like the point i, I was trying to make before is you, you can't achieve that by putting a machine on on somebody um like this is uh how how I know, but strange it, but the world it feels good and in their head
1: they're thinking this machine is fixing me it's it's a it's going to be a difficult ask for a lot of people to change their mindset and I think this is the battle you face every day going to work right is that you're 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 going against what we've convinced ourselves is going to be the somewhat easier way to be able to feel better everyone wants the magic pill
0: yeah uh, it it is tough I mean it, it's sort of the equivalent of of you know how do you you know, address the obesity epidemic well you know it's easy to say well just you know eat healthier and less of you know it but uh it's a challenge i mean it, it's it's the psychology of, of of you know the human mind is uh how do we get people eating healthily how do we get people moving more how do we get people getting off their right. devices and sleeping better like those are the challenges uh you know the medical community has and um like, uh, prevention to me means everything. And, and uh, there's some very interesting stats out there that if you just treat one of the chronic illnesses, uh, which is type 2 diabetes, uh, uh, which has become a you know an epidemic in North America, that we're going to be bankrupting our, our healthcare systems within the next 20 years based on one chronic illness, type 2 diabetes. It's just mind-boggling. And, and then we should be saying, well, it's entirely reversible for, for the majority of patients if they lose weight, and eat healthy. And, and you can actually reverse that uh, illness, but uh, that's the challenge is, is you know, uh, it's, it's that mindset, it's that psychology that we have to change.
1: I would think with the patients that are coming into your office, they're of a little bit of the mindset, right? They, they've, there's movement, maybe not the quality movement that you've been looking for, right? But, but they're at least coming in to be able to try to make things better. They're not just sitting on the couch going, well, I guess I'm hurt and that's, that's it, right? At least some of them are coming in because they want to be able to have this mobility again.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I'd love to, you know, uh, agree with you fully on that. And, and I, I think there are a good percentage of people that do want to improve their ability to move well. But uh, the other mindset is just give me something for my pain and, and I'll go my way. Um, so because we do a lot of procedures in, in the, the office, mm-hmm. we do uh, ultrasound-guided uh, hip injections for people with arthritic hips and things like that is, is we're often sent a fair number of patients just for pain management. And um, I try to get a little bit of, of you know, uh, preach the gospel to them when they're in that uh, you can really help with, with your overall pain if you just did move better. Because the thing we try to explain to patients is that a lot of the pain signals that come from, from an arthritic condition are not necessarily from the joint. It's this tight, stiff soft tissue envelope around the joint. So the way we kind of frame it is, 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 look, it's like a computer, there's a hardware problem and we see the hardware problem, which is the wear and tear in your knee or your hip. But what runs that hardware is also way out of tune, which is the software problem. So if they start working on the software problem with stretches, some strengthening routines, Train them how to walk differently. If you have an arthritic knee, you can change the way you walk. You can really rewire your movement patterns so that there's a lot less mechanical loading on your knee joint. The whole idea is you got to wake up the hips first. We call the hips the wheels on the car. So there, there's that aspect to it. And, and the people that buy into it um, realize very quickly that they can get themselves out of, of this painful condition because the the pain the way you have to look at it is it's just a warning signal it's telling you something's wrong so why do we keep knocking out the warning signal I, i tell people it's like me pulling out the engine light on your car and telling you there's nothing wrong with it just go away the engine lights off well we do that with pain medication with cortisone injections with whatever but unless you address why they're in pain which is very much what we're talking about, it is this soft tissue tightness, this myofascial tightness that develops in and around uh, arthritic joints, uh, you're just continually putting out the engine light. So that, that that's what I think we have to, the message has to get out there uh, to the medical community at large, uh, as well as to the physio community. There's a lot of resistance right now in the teaching programs to change the approach. Um, The younger we can get, uh, you know, the doctors in particular, the better. They're very open-minded, you know, the residents that come in. And they find it's just quite fascinating because it makes everything so simple for them. So the traditional way of of training was, was, you know, as I say, isolate the joint, examine the joint. And if you look at a shoulder, I, I listened to a shoulder presentation once by an orthopedic surgeon, There's over 100 special tests that you can do for a shoulder. Everybody wants to put their name on some kind of shoulder maneuver. And the irony in that is that every one of these special tests just produces pain. So I'm going, well, what's the point of that? We know the person had pain. So why do we want to reproduce the pain? Figure out why they're having the pain and and treat that. You know, so, you know, and, and the why they're having the pain is not because they've got this this tissue pathology well yes it does hurt when you tear your rotator cuff but why did they tear the rotator cuff like keep keep going backwards with this Go back to the movement patterns that have caused this the abnormal movement patterns
1: but the, the problem is though is that they're already in this situation in the first place there so we're, we're we can't go back we can't we can't go reverse in the car right so is there a way to move forward? because we know we can't go backwards now the, the damage is done that the body is able to are we able to at this point move forward and heal
0: yeah um i, I think like you say the damage uh until we come out more with regenerative technologies uh, uh leanne is done it's uh difficult to reverse but you know we're looking at some interesting uh you know uh, hopefully soon there will be biological resurfacing of worn out joints and uh uh, you know, we, we do work at the office with some of the regenerative procedures using platelet-rich plasma. to Can
1: you, can you just, what is yeah. that so
0: um, people understand? Well, uh, what uh, that involves is is uh, we take a, a blood draw from a patient and we have uh, two centrifuging systems in the office. But there's one uh, for arthritis, the other one we use for uh, tendon disease. Uh, by concentrating platelets, basically platelets are the small cells in your bloodstream that contain all the healing factors or the signals for tissue healing. So um, we concentrate these healing factors uh, by centrifuging them, and then we go into the damaged area of the tendon directly. We use ultrasound imaging, and we inject a high concentration of platelets into the tissue. Now we create a little bit of tissue trauma by, by needling into the damaged area. So what you do is you signal uh, again, you know, mild trauma to the tissue, the tissue now has uh, all of the necessary signals for healing, all the healing factors. So what they do is they they kickstart the healing process. So most tissues have progenitor cells in them that have to be woken up, and platelets do that. Um, so we can actually reverse... Uh, partial tears and tendons uh to a great extent with with platelet-rich plasma and there's very good science on this it's, it's there's some very oh, high level yeah. science on it now level one trials so it's something that we're starting to see evolve and i'm glad we're seeing that shift in medicine getting away from big pharmaceutical to more regenerative procedures you know using your body's biology to try to heal I mean, this itself is the body's yeah.
1: own yeah you know it's there it's the blood i mean I, I i always see it like spinning like a in this big wheel, and then being reinjected.
0: Yes, yeah, and uh, it, what injuries
1: uh, would you use that for? Like, what what would you suggest that to a patient for?
0: Yeah, like I guess the primary uh, things that we treat are chronic, you know, tennis elbows and golfers' elbows, uh, partial tears in rotator cuffs, not full thickness tears. You can't just inject platelets into a gap, you know, in tissue. But as long as there's a scaffold for for the platelets to work on. Uh, so partial uh, thickness rotator cuff tears, uh, some Achilles tendon tears, minor tears. It, yeah, and uh, um, we've done jumper's knees, like the patellar tendon in, in the kneecap. will uh, will do uh, in uh, uh, you know situations where it's become more chronic. So the way we we also frame it is that you you should probably go through, you know, the conventional treatment options. But if all else fails, which it often does in these chronic tendon problems, then PRP can be a really good solution for a lot of patients. It's all about selecting the patient properly too. So they do need uh, a proper imaging before you do the procedure just to diagnose the, you know, the, the, so the amount MRI, of wear and tear. And X-ray. MRI, ultras- ultrasound is a very useful mm-hmm. tool for, for muscle skeletal uh, imaging, sometimes MRI as well. and uh, And then from there, we can kind of make a pretty good prediction of how uh, effective the treatment would be for a patient.
1: Can I ask a question on ice and heat? Just because I have, I have you in the chair right now. Yeah. Uh, because I, I you constantly hear t- different suggestions. When to ice, when to heat. When we're dealing with um, soreness or, you know, yeah, twist your ankle on the running. Like, what, what are your suggestions? Or when does it apply?
0: Yeah, uh, um, I don't know if... I- <laughs> you saw the paper yesterday, the citizen had a article. I, I about, didn't. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm going, oh, wow. You know, so there actually, it was uh, the uh, summary of the article was there's no really good scientific evidence to show that uh, ice helps in terms of injury recovery. Um, so, you know, whether it's ice baths or just putting on an ice pack with a bit of compression, which was kind of interesting. So they did a, a meta-analysis of a lot of these, these uh, clinical trials on how effective ice might be. So, Yeah, things are still up in the air about uh, heat and ice. So the the consensus probably um, is, uh, again, we're going back to movement. If you have an injury, you can get the acute pain and swelling down, usually with ice and compression. But getting the joint moving quickly is very important in terms of recovery. And this is what this article alluded to, is that the patients that did better... Incorporated movement very quickly in the recovery. So, for an example, if if we see an acute ankle sprain now, I'm not saying you you, you can't ice it when the patient comes in, but what we, we do is we put on this thick rubber band around the patient's ankle called a voodoo band, or you know it's a, uh, and it, it applies compression, and we get them moving with this this on, and it's amazing how it reduces swelling lessens their pain and improves their mobility almost instantly
1: that's funny because i think for so long it was immobility right it was you you've stopped don't move it ice it so it's kind of numb wrap it and then stay off of it what, what was that not the old school way of thinking exactly. about certain things and now what you're saying is no we're going to put some pressure on it and do light movement
0: yeah I mean, uh, there may be, you know, more serious injuries like a fracture where you have to mobilize it and uh, and have them partial weight-bearing or, or using crutches. But uh, in the majority of soft tissue injuries mm-hmm. like the sprains and strains, uh, movement, I think, is the key now. You know, which uh, like the old RICE principle, rest, ice, compression, elevation, uh, seems to be a bit uh, outdated. And there's not a lot of good science to support RICE. Uh, so we're starting to see better evidence that Uh, you know, restoring the movement. And I I think, you know, whenever I start thinking of these articles, I always go back to, okay, how do we evolve? And and what would we have done, you know, let's say 50 million years ago when you're out as a hunter-gatherer and you turn your ankle? Well, you still had to feed yourself. You had to move. So our body adapted very well to being able to move, even with an injury, because that was survival. And, and, you know, the, these mechanisms are programmed into us, they're programmed into our genetics. So, you know, I think the misconception now that we have in this technological age is that we're, we're smarter than previous generations. We know more than previous generations. I read this little interesting book, and it was, uh, uh, well, it, it wasn't maybe an appropriate name in today's time's age, but it, it's Man's uh, uh, Guide for Health and Fitness. I, I'm, Perhaps not the exact correct title, but when they researched who wrote these articles in the book, it was Walt Whitman. And this is back in the uh, mid-1800s, and it was phenomenal. He talks about getting up, going out for a good brisk walk in the morning, uh, and wearing shoes that are comfortable and that feel as if you're walking barefoot, meaning minimalist footwear no big heel left, Uh, you know, eat well and, you know, be mindful of what you're eating. Like he's going back into these very, very simple health concepts. And here's a guy talking this way in the mid-1850s, and we're going, this is all we have to do now to get our population much healthier. But, uh, you know, it's evolved where we've become very focused on disease management, And I think it's got to be directed towards prevention of that disease.
1: I'd love to see it eventually get there. I really would. And I love having guests on the show that continually are spreading this message and and the work that's being done. You mentioned something in that, the walking, but the walking with the shoe and the feeling barefoot. I know this is another component for you, um, as you were talking even earlier about alignment and how we walk and how the the hips are and how the knees are. You go back to that a lot, right? That's what you're looking at that's where you find help is help is already available in that sense.
0: Yeah. Uh, the, the fundamentals I think for proper, you know, movement as well, uh, Leanne are, are, looking at, uh, you know, what's ha- happening at the level of the foot and ankle and then looking upstream from that and also looking downstream from the hip. Are they controlling and stabilizing well through the hip? But when you look at, at what's happening at the foot and ankle, so we've done a, a, some really strange things in the, in the uh, world of footwear. And I, I when you look at athletic footwear, um, Nike, you know, developed this this shoe that with this big thick padding on it, so it it allowed a, a lot of uh, people to join this this running boom that we had in the uh, you know 70s and 80s, and and so it allowed every sort of biomechanically sort of inefficient runner to get out there and pound the pavement because you can pound the pavement with you know
1: really three good.
0: centimeters of cushioning. But you also start to create all sorts of other run, running-related injuries as a result of that, and that's what the sport doctor used to see because you're you're changing um, the proper biomechanics of running with these big, thick heels. So when you look at how we should be running, it should involve um, more hip extension. And I made earlier a comment on, on your website where you're running and you've got this amazing amount of hip extension in your running. But when you look at most runners, they're very much uh, – uh, Forward heel strikers, and then they go into into midfoot plant and toe takeoff. So that's creating all sorts of torsional stresses. It throws all the joints out of alignment. So when you look at at what's more bio, biomechanical correct, if you shave, well, one thing we tell patients is like, go to a field, nice cushion field like a soccer field. Take your shoes off. Just run back and forth on the field. You automatically convert yourself to a midfoot plant. Your brain tells you that it hurts to to land on your heel. So you you start landing very, you know, minimal heel strike, but onto the pad of your foot, midfoot. So your brain automatically rewires your movement pattern. So as you start transitioning down into more minimalist footwear, meaning there's not this big three centimeter uh, heel left on your shoe, you start to adapt very well to, you know, this, this correct form of running. Now we, you know, we, we tell patients, uh, you know, just don't try this overnight. Don't go out, go out and buy a pair of Vibram or minimalist footwear and go running in it your usual distance. You have to sort of train yourself that way. But we've seen that, you know, the footwear has created a lot of issues. So when you look at what happens also, when you have a three centimeter heel lift, you're walking on a ramp your whole life. And unfortunately, with the women's shoe industry, it became extreme with high heels, et cetera, very fashionable. But it shortens your Achilles tendon. It shortens your plantar fascia. So what do we see coming into the office? Achilles tendon issues and plantar fasciitis. It also loads your forefoot. So a lot of people have pain in the the metatarsal joints, the joints at the forefoot, Morton's neuromas, bunions, all these issues. Why? Because we've now transferred all the mechanical load onto the forefoot. It's just like standing up on your toes all day, but you're walking on your toes all day and you're not supposed to be doing that. So this is what footwear has done. So we had a couple of our, our physiotherapists look into this and they, they looked at the, you know, the history of how footwear evolved. And really the first heel was related to the status symbol that a person had in that society. In other words, if you were a peasant working in the fields, you wore those sandals. And that was it, a little leather pad on the bottom of your foot. So the aristocracy were allowed to start elevating themselves. So it was a, a social status that that drove heels on shoes. had nothing to do with, are, are we improving the biomechanics of footwear? So then it became extreme uh, as it was driven by the fashion industry particularly in the women's fashion industry with high heels and uh, i remember reading an article uh, uh, last year in the in the paper about how there was reconstructive uh, foot surgeries for actresses and models that had destroyed their feet wearing high heels but now we can reshape the foot so it actually can adapt to a high heel and i'm going this has gotten really weird you know so that's how, how strange things have become. So we've we've taken this, um, you know, to heart saying, well, if, if you look at uh, gain proper movement patterns, you can achieve much better movement with, with minimalist type shoe. In other words, no big heel on the shoe, uh, a lot of flexibility of the shoe. So you develop not only a, a mobile foot, but a strong foot. Your foot muscles start to activate themselves much better.
1: And does that translate up the body i mean when you've got a a, a strong planted foot that it I, I would think right that's your foundation and it, it aligns all the way up
0: very much so yeah we call that uh, creating a tripod like you, you you should have the strength in your foot musculature and you know there's easy ways to uh, like that's another movement screen we do in the office where we have you know uh, like a stand on one foot uh, you know hold your 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 knee or, or hip up High on the other foot, and see if you can stabilize. And you'd be surprised how many people just sort of collapse they inwards. I can't do
1: it. I'm just looking at the time. <laughs> no, <you laughs> want we can keep talking. I'm like, oh my god, I think I should have gotten like the the wraparound. Uh, So, because like we had you would hit on the runners because I'm assuming there's a lot, and I know here, especially even in Ottawa, we've got a great audience around the world. But I see, I love it. I the spring, and we got runners on the canal. We got everything. So footwear their, how they're running, how they're placing their legs. I mean, they're going to come in with, uh, you know, stress fractures on their shins or, uh, you know, knee joints and ankles. Like they're going to come in and you're going to be like, okay, let's look. Let's first off, I want to see you walk. Is that going to be the first question you're going to ask them?
0: Uh, Yeah. I think uh, looking at that movement pattern is, yeah, really important. Uh, And then, um, you know, also looking at, uh, you know, alignment issues, stability issues, tightness issues. Like, the irony in what we're talking about too is you can get extremely fit people, uh, you know, cyclists, runners doing high mileage, and yet because of the movement pattern that the, that they're doing, it does create a lot of imbalances. You know, tightness in certain areas, uh, and uh, you know, relative weakness in other areas. Um, so you, you do see that pattern in runners. It's a very predictable pattern in in distance runners as well as uh, in, in high mileage cyclists, and um, so. Again, the message to, to that individual is, is that you really have to work on your mobility, uh, maintaining, you know, flexibility of tissues, doing your stretches, because running will break you down. You're not going to break down running, you know, so unless you, you bathe... So, Unfortunately, as you get into sort of pathologies that we see with runners, a lot of times it's their high hamstrings where they develop degenerative changes in the hamstring tendon. Uh, IT bands are just like piano wires for for runners, and hamstrings get very tight. So hip flexors are are super tight as well. So if they started addressing these early, we wouldn't see the tendon breakdown that we see later on in runners. And... and, uh, uh, I I think a lot of these injuries that go back to, are they preventable? I think very much so. We're not, we're all not pre-programmed to fall apart.
1: I like that though. We're not pre-programmed to fall apart. We're just, we're just doing that. Okay. So great tips there for runners. Give me like your top three things right now before I wrap this up for the individual that is more or less suffering from the sitting disease more than anything and going, I've too many injuries from the good old days. I'm getting too old for this. I'm just easier to stay inactive.
0: Well, I think, Leon. one of the things that I would like to say is just move. Uh, what surprises me, and uh, it happened about a week ago, I had a, a little Italian lady come in. She was 95. She had just shoveled her laneway. This is probably February when there was snow. And uh, I went through some movement screens with her. She could do a full squat. We actually had her doing bear walk in the clinic, which is alternate mm-hmm. arm leg. And I, I said to her, I says, like, how can you do this? She says, I just move, I love to move. And this is essentially just the message is just move. Now, sometimes you do need to be taught the fundamentals of, of what we call quality movement. But once you've got those fundamentals, then just move, create some quantity for yourself. And it's a very simple message to get out there. We are moving animals. We're not designed to be sitting in chairs. This is where things go wrong.
1: Uh, people can find more information. Where can they find you? If if getting in as, a, as an athlete, trust me, we've, you know, the athletes that the, they're pounding down to be able to get in and see you, but there's also, there's you, but there's the clinic next, like with you with Optimize.
0: Yeah. So we, uh, right now our, our uh, clinic, uh, which uh, is a sport medicine clinic, along with a physiotherapy clinic, which includes a movement gym, as well as a minimalist uh, footwear store called the Foot Collective. Uh, We're in Riverside South, um, uh, the corner of uh, Lime Bank and uh, Spratt. Um, So we we tend to be sort of uh, servicing the south end of the city, although we get patients from all over the city coming in. It's not that far, despite what People mm-hmm. think it's uh, you know, five minutes south of the airport. So uh, that is where uh, I do all my clinical work. Uh, I do some work still at the hospitals uh, you know, as an operating room, uh, in, in an orthopedic operating room. But uh, the majority of the week, I'm, I'm there. We have two sport medicine doctors. Uh, we have four physiotherapists, um, one massage therapist. And what's interesting is we have a, a, a person that comes in and teaches uh, uh, footwork training, and and this is where we, we sort of get people to walk differently, people particularly with arthritic knees. Um, it, it it's a very much movement based experience. So we encourage people when they come in to dress like they're coming to a gym, because right from the get go, um, you're either down on the floor or you're doing some sort of movement. We don't believe that uh, you know having a patient up on a on a treatment bed is going to get them, uh, uh, you know, yeah. out of out of pain. Um,
1: so that's where it is. Okay, opti- and uh, website, Optimize?
0: Uh, so it's um, optimizeottawa.com is the uh, clinic's website. Uh, we're starting to uh, post more content for patients, you know, uh, uh, videos that, that show, you know, key stretches and things like that. And uh, that's part of the, the initiative is we're trying to get more content so that patients perhaps that are, uh, you know, out of the catchment area can have access to some of this information.
1: Well, I think so, right? Yeah. They're trying to envision, as you were talking about this, these bear crawls or this walking or this, you know, yeah. the, the wall, what do you call that? The uh, wall angel. The wall yeah. angel. I still have a hard time doing that. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, but there's some there's some great information there, at least so you have the visuals as to some of the basic movements that you that you had been talking about. Thank you so much for the information. I, I'm hoping that we will continue to see this shift. Uh, and I'm hoping that people, you know, listen to this and, and realize that they're sitting that the sitting disease is, is uh, for me it's terrifying
0: yeah. yeah well thank you very much for uh, having me on uh. yeah. Appreciate being yeah. able to get this It's great this not to see across. you in the <laughs> yeah, not, <laughs> That's right. Not,
1: not, not, not <laughs> us as patients right now uh, having to come in with, uh, with a couple of injuries. Uh, that is a wrap on living your life with Leanne Lang. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, please like, share, subscribe, comment. Uh, allow other people to be able to realize the information that we're able to share here on the podcast. Have a great day. said that the more time you have to invest the greater the return well guess what kids have the most time if we learn to invest early that's why i created the cash kid podcast where i teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn save and invest their money join me on this journey as we interview
0: experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids this podcast will help you become the money expert among your family and friends just remember Anyone can be a Cash Kid. You just have to learn how to become one. Get ready to grow your financial
1: knowledge and your wallet with the Cash Kid Podcast.